I need you to take your Bibles and I need you to turn to the book of Revelation in chapter 2. We're going to be looking through verses 8 through 11. About, uh, I guess it's been 15 to 20 years ago, Beth and I traveling with uh, her brother and sister-in-law and Beth's aunt, Katie Rose, we went on a trip to Western Turkey, the seven churches of Asia Minor. I had always wanted to go on one of those trips, and the Lord granted it. We visited, I won't take you through a travel log of all seven by any means, but by the way, thanks for taking, kicking off last week in Ephesus, which is uh, when you, if you're able to visit these sites, the city of Ephesus is the most uh, wonderfully restored site and the most, one of the rivals Smyrna in magnificence, but it's present day restoration of the ancient city through tedious archaeological work is just a sight to behold. I mean, if you just went online and Googled in city of Ephesus, you'd probably get some dazzling pictures, I would imagine. But anyway, we were there probably 15, 20 years ago in Western Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. By the way, if you want to find the, the place to which I'm referring, you can go into the back of your Bible. I don't have a map, um, and I'm just going to leave that up to you. Probably that would be mostly men who will do that and turn and check the map out. And um, you will find this fine Turkey, and you go to the west, and you will you'll see right, of course, Greece, uh, right across the water in the Adriatic, and then you'll see the uh, little island of Samos, and there is the Ionic Sea, and you'll see if um, you, you will you will notice if it's in modern the modern city is called Izmir, I Z M I R, Izmir, and it's one of these seven churches, the ancient city of Smyrna. It sits in a very uh, uh, conducive place for uh, mer- uh, for commercial shipping. It has for thousands of years. The city became a reality about 1000 B.C. And it sits in such, this ancient city of Smyrna sits back in a harbor which has a narrow enough neck going into that harbor that ships could go in and a chain could be brought across the, the, the land on each side of the entrance into the harbor. And it could keep pirates out, which was a very important matter in commercial shipping. So it was a very uh, popular seaport. It was a city that was beautifully situated. There is a, there's a mountain up behind the city. Uh, the city's layout is it's, it's still, a, it's still a city. You can go to some of these other cities, that seven church cities, and it's quite disappointing. I mean, you go to Laodicea and you're just going to visit a hill. And, but this, this city is still a city. It's Mir. And in about 600 B.C., it was destroyed. But about 290 
B.C., one of Alexander the Great's generals, Lysimachus, he was, um, it became kind of his inheritance, as it were, and he saw to it that the city was rebuilt, and rebuilt it he did. He laid it out at right angles with streets that went off the harbor, wide, broad streets, just beautifully situated, and it became known as the first of Asia because of its beauty. And you might want to hang on that first of Asia thing uh, for when we read the text. Because uh, the citizens of Smyrna were quite proud of their uh, opulence. It was a very well, a lot of wealthy people lived there. Quite a sizable Jewish population, wealthy Jewish population lived there. And so the city was the home of a number of temples to gods and goddesses, Apollos, Aphrodite, and others, and just attracted people from all around the world through its commercial uh, shipping and its beautiful location. In the year 70 AD, a man was born whose name you may have heard. The man who was born in that region, his name was Polycarp. Polycarp uh, probably knew, talked to people who had seen Jesus in his earthly ministry. He is believed to have been maybe, certainly maybe a student of, of John, the, uh, the Apostle John. He knew him. And Polycarp through the years, as he came to Christ and as he became skilled in the scriptures and he eventually became the bishop of the city. That is, his bishopric was over a lot of small, a lot of house churches in the area. The, this, this, about 156 A.D., Persecution of the church had uh, become quite uh, intense. Um, it had become a factor at the time that John the Apostle wrote the book of Revelation about 93, 94 AD when Domitian was the emperor and he was determined to destroy Christianity. But by 156, this persecution had just continued to elevate and Polycarp was a man who was well-known, respected by this time, about 80, 86 years of age. And with the population being intensely, intensely uh, angry at the presence of Christians, it was a, an, um, a rage and a under-the-surface uh, animosity toward the Christian church that was uh, going to spill over and affect Polycarp. Polycarp was, uh, was he was the, the regional officers and the politicians. Someone said that well, Polycarp could be found in such a home and such and such a place, and they went to arrest him for being Christian and a leader of the church. And he was... When he was arrested, he asked kindly if he could have an hour for prayer before he was taken into the city. 
And it was granted to him. And then they brought him into the city. And then he had to stand before the uh, the provincial um, officer and had to give a reason to or answer to his uh, his uh, Christianity. I'm going to dip into a record of this. This is a record that came from the Christians of the city of Smyrna who wrote it up. And this is the way they described that appearance of Polycarp. Polycarp looked with a severe countenance on the mob of lawless heathen in the stadium. And he waved his hand at them. And looking up to heaven, he groaned and said, Away with the atheist! But the proconsul urged him and said, Swear, and I will release thee. Curse the Christ. And Polycarp said, Eighty and six years have I served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Well, as it went on, he was threatened to, it was threatened that he would be thrown to the wild beast. That, uh, through some glitch in the process, that was uh, preempted by having him put and burned at the stake. And the description of that comes out in no things happened, now things happen with such speed and less time than it takes to tell. For the mob straightway brought together timber and uh, other wood from the workshops and baths, the Jews giving themselves zealously to the work. And they were as they were like to do. And they were about to nail him to the stake when he said, Let me be as I am. He that granted me to endure the fire will grant me also to remain at the pyre unmoved without being secured with nails. And they burned him at the stake. Polycarp in the city of Ismir, or the ancient city of Smyrna. This city is located about, if you're still looking at a map or interested in it all, it's about 35 miles north of the city of Ephesus. It's a wealthy city, as I said, Seaport still has a Christian church today, a small size. I visited one of the, the smaller Orthodox churches that's located, a very beautiful little building located in the city. It has beautifully paved streets, one that's known as the Golden Street, which is quite uh, impressive. And there was a temple to Tiberius in this city. And there was also located there what was the emperor cult. And that emperor cult caused a lot of suffering, persecution to the church. That once a year, a person would be required to come and burn incense and say, Caesar is kurios, Lord. Seems kind of low demand, doesn't it? Does it? Really? Oh, wait a minute. Just a pinch of incense. So you're expressing political loyalty. This caused the church no small amount of suffering. And so here is this city. Here is this church in this time in which 
John describes the conditions there in Revelation 2, 8 through 11. Now, this church, one of seven, is one of two churches where there is no rebuke assigned to this church. I find that interesting, especially in that this church is one that's uh, a suffering church. Could there be a connection? Could it be that maybe a suffering church goes through a kind of refinement and a purification process, and it has a way of really getting, giving, promoting your concentration on what really matters? And it's been often said that when Christians from the United States go to visit Christians in places where the churches are under a tremendous amount of, <clears throat> of pressure, ostracism, difficulty, there's a certain kind of intensity and focus that's admirable. Well, I'll leave that for the moment, but let's come back to this church. This church that exists existed in the city of Smyrna. One interesting thing about this church is just in terms of its name, the city. Smyrna, you may hear the word myrrh, comes from this, is the basis of this word. And it really, it means the word Smyrna means bitter. And the myrrh, the the fragrance that uh, comes, the myrrh is a fragrance smell, but it comes through pressure exacted upon it. Well, there it is. There's the city. Can you imagine house churches scattered about and undergoing some severe trials? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read. There's only a few verses. I'm going to read it, but I'm going to end up reading it twice. And I'll come back and take a verse and we'll establish what, well, the scriptures, I think, establish a certain truth that I believe could very well be the, could I say it this way, a caption for each of these sections, three of them. We'll go through it that way. Follow with me now. I'm going to read beginning at verse 8. And I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard for those who have other translations. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write. I don't know how far into this. I haven't had an opportunity to listen to the message from last week. But there is some debate as to who this angel is. Is this angel a pastor? Or is this angel an angel, a human messenger, or an angel? I tend to tilt toward a supernatural being, namely an angel, who is charged with oversight or protection of the church. I know that Christians have some kind of of angelic uh, relationship, not we to them, but they to us mostly. But that could very well be the case here. So they're charged for caring for this angel, caring for, charged with caring for this congregation. All right, in Smyrna, write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say, They are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear. You do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested 
and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. All right, let's consider some truth here. This is an important truth. A persecuted church. What is the Lord who is in the midst of the lampstands, who is evaluating a congregation? That's kind of a scary thought in a sense. I mean, can you imagine getting a uh, the Lord Jesus Christ looking over the congregation, knowing this is the glorified Lord, knowing all the hearts and thoughts and members and everything that's going on, and then... Here is his summation of his view of the church. I'll just tell you this briefly, that that does two things to me. Yes, it kind of rocks me back on my heels with what in the world would he say about us? But on the other hand, I look and see what he says about them. And then I'm quick to say, oh, Lord, this is a church for which about which you had no rebuke. I want to look at this one more closely. I want to see this photograph in the sense that I would like to know what it is that has made this church the way that it was. And may we emulate. All right, here it is. First thing I want to point out, which is that which I think comes from this statement with regard to first and last and who was dead, that the Lord of the churches is sovereign over all the suffering it is called upon to endure. I think this was Justin's third point this morning, but uh, we just both happened to get to the same doctrinal address on the same day. So I guess the Lord has something for us here that this sovereignty over suffering. Now, when you take this statement in verse eight, this these opening this opening description. And by the way, when you look at these opening descriptions in these churches, you'll find that there is that uh, description of the Lord that's fitting to the condition of that church. And keep that in mind as you go through. What is fitting about this way of describing Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church, and speaking to this church undergoing persecution? I submit to you the following two items. First, that the church is to draw strength from the eternal nature of Jesus Christ. The idea of his sovereign eternality is in focus here. And we need to be reminded of something. When you see that he is the ho protos, the ho eschatos, the first and the last, what's the significance of that? It's something that's used to other places in Scripture, used in the Old Testament as well, that Jesus Christ is alone. He alone is qualified to know the whole story that um, in the midst of which the suffering in Smyrna fit. Let me find another way to say that. Justin dealt with these matters. He dealt with it admirably this morning when he said, if I may recall the preacher's words to you tonight, that 
there is that truth of the sovereignty of God, but that in and of itself doesn't necessarily breathe some kind of fresh air into your suffering. It is that he is a loving God who knows he's infinitely wise and infinitely loving. I may not be able to connect the dots as to what's going on. As a matter of fact, I've spent a good bit of my the last 30 years or so looking at this biblical teaching on suffering. And I know that you can look at all kinds of benefits that come from suffering that are revealed in Scripture. But then when the winds of adversity blow on your own life, in your own church, you find yourself scrambling and you find yourself in these emotional dust storms. Been in one of those? And I don't care how good a theologian you are, you still are going to get yourself, you're going to self find a bit of disorientation. So Jesus is described here as the first and the last. He has the sweep of the story. He's the A to Z, we may say, the beginning to the end. I don't have a, I don't have a, an, the best analogy I'd like to come to, but some kind of an illustration maybe like this. One who has the whole picture in mind. I'll use something a little step away from a, a linear to just a picture. When we go to Mississippi and visit Beth's 97-year-old aunt, which we did last week, uh, she really enjoys puzzles, among a lot of other things. 97, good, good mind. And she likes puzzles. So this becomes kind of a, uh, a little family, the five of us, it comes to be kind of an, a little event, coming and going and doing other things. Well, this time, one, one of the puzzles was, and I got in on this, I, sometimes I try to um, dodge the, the thing, but, uh, 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 but I got into this one. I felt a little bit, I got into a little ownership of it. Uh, it was, I don't know, a thousand piece puzzle, something. Now, I'm trying to think of this puzzle was a little bit difficult because it was the picture of a lot of balloons of, um, you know, the kind, not party balloons, but, you know, the kind, yeah, those balloons that go up in the air. And, um, and all different colors. And set against, you know, a background of blue with some land, of course. And, but you had, I don't know, there may have been maybe 12 to 15 of these on this. Now, it was a challenge because you had these color schemes that in, there were some, there were similarities. But I just got to thinking, what if, if you had no picture? See, we, I don't think this is cheating. We just, we had the picture and we keep passing the picture around and we hold it up and try to match a color and all that. What if you have no picture? You just got 1,000 pieces of a, pic, a puzzle just, hey, go for it. What are we dealing with here? Well, that might make puzzle working a little short-lived if you did it that way. I only want to use that feeble analogy to say that when you look at our lives and when you look at the scope, the sweep of, of a church's life and our personal lives, to us it can be like that. There are these pieces and you might get a little section here, a little section there, but the Lord sees the whole 
thing. And he wants the church to know that this is who he is. He is this way. Will you please not then take some kind of repose in that? Could you, this is the Lord which it makes you, Lord, I love you more. Because I know I can trust you and you see it all and I only see a few pieces. So I submit to you that what is being communicated here is this strength for endurance, for working through these difficulties, that he's the Lord of history, he's the creator, and he is in control regardless of the appearance of things, but not just in control. I mean, that sounds kind of techy, just in control, but lovingly, lovingly, as we were reminded in Romans eight twenty eight, all things are working together for good to them that love the Lord. And then there is this other factor in the verse, if you will, verse 8, if you look at it again. It's the first and the last, who was dead. That's a very interesting grammatical uh, statement, interesting grammatically. It, it has a tense and a voice here, which it comes through like this, became a corpse, became a corpse. It smacks of the idea that this was just an episode in his life. <laughs> for us, death, we think of the finality of death, but for Jesus, it was just an episode. He met it, he went through it, he came out of it. He's on the other side of it. You know, the book of Revelation began that way. Who holds the keys of hate, death and Hades. So I submit to you that the church should should draw something from this. This is the Lord that we love who's in the midst of us, who's sovereign over the churches, and that the church is to draw strength from the victory that Jesus Christ has over sin and death. He became a corpse. And this is an incentive to suffering saints. How? That the believers at Smyrna, they could face martyrdom Knowing that faithfulness is rewarded. How do we know? Death couldn't defeat Jesus Christ. And he was rewarded for such. Wasn't he? For the joy that set before him. He endured the cross. Counting it his shame. He endured. And then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Saints. Beloved. Brothers and sisters. Imagine you're the church in Smyrna. You're hearing this. Ah, I hear a sigh of satisfaction. I should. We should. That here is our Lord. He's been through it all. He has run the gauntlet. He has been spat upon and ridiculed. He has been slandered. He has, he has been beaten. He has been crucified. Been whipped. He went through all of this. And he defeated death. You know, death is not the worst thing that can happen in the, in the life of a saint. It is death where there is a second death awaiting the non-believer. All right, I'm going to let that rest. And now we're ready, re- ready to get into the ninth verse. Let's look at it and see what truth. So you have that first one. Here it is. A repeat. It's an echo from this morning. God lovingly is sovereign. Know who he is. Love your Lord more. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. 
And Lord, oh, I pray that my behavior in the face of my own trials will be such that I honor you because you've gone before me in the path of suffering and have shown me the way. So help me, Lord. Now, with that said, he says, I know your tribulation. Let's just do it this way. Let me give you what I think is a way to assess or summarize this verse 9, and we'll break it down. There is then this, the church of Jesus Christ must expect the winds of adversity. It's going to happen in greater and lesser degrees. And notice there are, I think, four four different aspects of this winds of adversity of experience. First of all, we can expect to be persecuted. And he commends the way in which they're dealing with trials. They had to have been handling them really well. How is the Lord assessing us? Hmm, think about this. How is the Lord looking at us as we work through some real sorrows? Well, okay, he's, we can expect to be persecuted. The omniscient Christ is fully aware what the church is enduring. Now, this presents a challenge to the church. And that, again, I hear the echo from this morning that the Lord allows those whom he loves and those who love him to go through some awful things. You know, Christians are being murdered for the sake of the gospel right now. And we hear these horror stories, and they're not even pictured. We can, if one wanted to, you could go to YouTube and actually watch what ISIS has done to Christians in some places. What is Boko Haram doing to Christians in Nigeria? And where you go through this world, you find Christians who are really paying extreme price, great price. And Christ knows this and what his people are enduring. But notice another matter he uses. He uses, he said, I know your tribulation. Thank you, Lord. You know it. Now, the reason that makes a difference to me is that I know something about the one who knows about my tribulation. <laughs> I mean, somebody else could say that and they may, hey, I know what, hey, I know your tribulation. Okay, thank you. But this is the Lord we know, we love, who loves us. And he says, your poverty. We can expect to suffer great loss. Smyrna was a, when was an affluent city. Question. Why was the church poor? Could it have been economic sanctions? Maybe their businesses being boycotted? We know this happened when you look in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, 39. Though believers there were addressed were being, they were losing properties. I'm going to come back to this a little later on, but I just want to, maybe, maybe there were informers who had been paid huge sums of money out of estates of Christians that were taken over. I mean, government could do that. <coughs> and maybe a social position in the community forfeited, a loss of livelihood, ostracism, boycotts of business. Hmm. 
I think I've heard appeals for such in the last year or two. Am I remembering right? <clears throat> Don't eat at because of, or even more so, or not more so necessarily, but we're putting you out of business. You'll bake no more cakes. You'll do more, no more floral decorations. Who knows where it may come, <clears throat> come home to us. And then, thirdly, we, we possess a wealth which is beyond comprehension. I love this. Little, you see the little parentheses, the parentheses around this word, uh, statement? But you're rich. You're plusiois. <clears throat> what does he mean? I have a little excursus here. Um, that's a fancy word for a preacher to mean. I could take more of your time at this point if I wanted to. <clears throat> and what I, I, what I can do is that I'll just I'll give you an idea of what he's saying here briefly without commenting. It means some of the following. That the child of God is a joint heir with Jesus Christ. How about that for a family connection? <laughs> a joint heir with Jesus Christ. What is is that? But it's his, it's ours, it's mine, it's yours. <clears throat> the child of God, because of his heirship with Christ, is wealthy, Second Corinthians 8, 9. That other was Romans 8, 17. And the child of God also participates in the rule of Christ over the universe, First Corinthians 3, 21. It's coming, some rulership. I don't know how that's going to work out. But I've got God's word on something that really is grand that's coming our way in Christ. And according to 2 Corinthians 6.10, the spiritual affluence of the child of God enables us to share this with others. In other words, God will give us some material wealth in varying degrees so we can share it with others. And material prosperity, we know, can keep one poor in spiritual wealth. We know that from Luke 12.21. And we know that the child of God is to be is to make himself wealthy by making deposits in the bank of heaven, according to Matthew six twenty. Now I have a little list here that I put together that I really love this one. I looked and said, "Well, I, I did that. I don't know. Probably it was about thirty years ago." And I went through and I just tried to got a list of all of our. Would you like to know what you got in the bank? I'm going to give you your bank account right here on the spot. Here it is. This is what we have. And our, I said our airship is with Christ. I'm going to fly. Here's our airship. And here is how we're prosperous. Here's what we have. We have redemption. We have propitiation. We have reconciliation. We have no condemnation. We have union with Christ. We are free from the law. We're a child of God. We're adopted. We're acceptable to God. We're justified. We're forgiven. We have made nigh to the throne of grace. We've been delivered from the powers of darkness. We've been transferred into God's kingdom. We are on the rock, Christ Jesus. We have a gift from God. We are a gift from God to Christ. We've been delivered from the power of sin, of our sinful nature. We're partakers of a holy and royal priesthood, a chosen generation. We're given access to God. We're within the much more care of God. We're in God's inheritance, heavenly citizens, members of the family and household of God, united with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Spirit, recipients of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, glorified, complete in Him. And we have a resurrection body that's in store for us, a new heaven, a new earth, and shared His glory. That's your bank account. 
I like it. I like that. Oh, but you're rich. Now, let's take one other statement, though, that he that he gives here with regard to this church. He says, you're poor, but take heart, you're rich. And then he says, and the blasphemy by those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, let's let's explain what a couple of things. Let's explain the Jew and the synagogue of Satan. What he's referring to here is that there were Jews in the city who had it in for the church. And we know from Romans 2, 28, 29, that not all Jews are Jews. Jesus said to the unbelieving Pharisees that they were of their father, the devil. So the Jews in Smyrna, who had not believed in the Messiah, had apparently allied themselves with the pagan opposition to the church. So that was quite a formidable uh, coalition set up against the church. Wealthy Jews at that. And these Jews thought that their gathering in the synagogue to worship God. They, they thought they were doing so, worshiping God. But in actuality, they were in league with the devil in the persecution of Christians. Whew, boy, that's a burner. Now, out of context... I can see the front page of the AJC preacher and, you know, out there in Fayetteville. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ said about this church, that there were these unbelieving Jews in that city, as I said, who had it in for the church. And Christians being accused, among other things, of worshiping a dead criminal. Slandered. You know, the early church was accused of Quite uh, a number of things. And this may sound strange to you. You know what they were accused of? Students who've done any little reading, brief hist- uh, the history of the early church in the first century, will find Christians were uh, slandered and uh, accused of cannibalism, lust, immorality, breaking up homes, atheism, political disloyalty, and incendiarism. They were pyromaniacs. You know, Nero really turned that one on them in the burning of Rome, blamed the Christians. Uh, so, in other words, if something bad happens, then you get this kind of reputation. But wait a minute. What about today? Um, now, I'm, I don't want this to sound like a whine. For one thing, as I look at this, when believers suffer and go through difficult times, they're not, we're not to be whiners. And you don't have to go around and run up the plate. We're being persecuted. We're being persecuted. Uh, no, but, but do recognize what we call homophobic, anti-constitutional. Oh, what's wrong with you? Don't you know the Constitution says, Thomas Jefferson said, separation of church and state. What's wrong with you? Uh, that you're unloving. We are unloving. Um, we promote poor mental health attitudes here we claim that you get your identity from being in christ don't you know who you are i mean the list can go on of ways in which the church is slandered so what do we do we expect it we don't whine about it but we know that we have the lord of the church who is the first and the last who has become dead and now he's alive and he is the the lord over us 
and I'm going to commit the whole experience to him and proceed joyfully. Now let's look at the third and final, verses 11, uh, 10 and 11. And it is this. The, he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. So they're going to have their feet held to the fire, perhaps quite literally. Stop being afraid. It is a present imperative. So stop being afraid. Don't, <clears throat> don't be shocked that the world is hostile to you. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, a prelude to trials and execution, that you may be tested. This will show where your true loyalty is. Uh, when you go through the fire of affliction, let's see what, what shows up here. And you'll have tribulation 10 days. Here, let me state what I think is involved in this. I'll stop right in the middle of that and let me go forward. That we, the church of Jesus Christ, must not allow hostile opposition to paralyze us. Don't let it paralyze us. Make us stop, quit, hide, retreat. We must not give in to fear. Don't be shocked that the world hates you. There will be times of intense suffering. But don't fear. Don't, you know, we have a problem in our culture. And our culture, and we've all probably, we've all been steeped in it to some degree, that our safety is the most important thing. I, there's a commercial on it. I can't even remember what it says, but I, I've, hear, I've heard it. That your safety is the most important thing. And then it goes yada, 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 whatever they're selling. And you just check sometimes to see how much this, whether it's a car or whether it's uh, um, soap or whatever, you know, your safety, you know, your safety is of the utmost importance. So we've got to be careful that the safety thing doesn't take over and it can turn us into worry warts. We're, we can get fearful and be careful. And notice something else here with this matter of fear. He actually puts a little time reference in here. Did you notice that? He says, 10 days. What do you think? What, 10 days? He doesn't give, when was the last time the Lord gave you and me personally? He said, don't worry, you're going to be out of the hospital in two days. Now, the doctor may say that, but uh, what do you think might be the significance of this 10 days? Yeah, thank you. Yes, it's, it's, it's relatively brief. And this duration, uh, the duration of the suffering is under the control of God. There's no testing taken you, but such is his common man. But God is, uh, is faithful. He'll not allow you to endure the testing above what you're able, but will with the testing make a way of escape that you may be able to endure it, go through it. So it says to me, though, I don't get the time and we don't know we don't know how long we're going to have to endure some things that we endure. But you know what this says to me? The Lord says, I've got your back. <laughs> I, it won't last any longer than is necessary. It won't be too short. It won't be too long. I got it under control. And you know why I take comfort in that? Because I know the Lord who said it. 
He's the first and the last. He's the one who was a corpse and is alive. And he loves me and I can trust him and I'm going to leave it with him. Now, there's another factor that's involved here, that we must be faithful in the face of coming trials. Now, I dropped off before I got to that. But look, he says, be faithful until death. I will give you the Stephanon taste zoes, the crown of life. That's Stephanos. This is the crown which belongs to life. It's a crown. Now, we think of the, don't think of the Burger King crown. Um, Think of kind of an olive wreath, a victor's crown, something comparable, incomparable in, in modern athletes, maybe the, the uh, gold medal. And there is going to be a reward. So be faithful in the face of coming trials as a crown of life. So to be faithful means don't jump ship spiritually. Don't drop out. Don't crawl into a hole. Don't retreat. Don't hide. Stay strong. Stay steady. Keep serving God day to day. You say, well, I can't even see myself doing that. You know, weeks and months. Hey, one day at a time. Uh, the echo of this morning, Jesus said, <laughs> look, tomorrow will take care of itself. There's enough trouble with it already. You just take care of today. So, therefore, stay true to Christ in your words, in your actions. Don't resort to revenge. Don't, don't panic. Faithfulness to Christ in the valley of the shadow of death is going to be rewarded. And the quality of life in the kingdom will be extraordinary for those who remain faithful to the Lord in this life through the hardest of times. I believe in rewards. I don't hear enough of that. I really don't. And we need to hear more because Scripture has a lot to say about it. And it is that promise that the Lord has given for faithfulness. And then there's one final thing that comes up at the end of verse 11. Now this he says, now we go, now hear this, now hear this. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Get your antenna up. He who overcomes, Nikon, Nikon, or Nike comes from this, Victor, overcomes, shall not, for those of you who've had some experience in the Greek language, you'll, you'd look, and this is a double negative. He's really, it's a, it's a big knot. <laughs> it's a big one. Not, he said, be hurt by the second death. Now, we have a little bit of modest amount of work to do with this. Because there is a problem involved here. And what's the problem? The problem is that if exemption from the second death is free, then why is it held out here as a reward? Now, I have friends who say that the overcomer terminology in these seven churches is referring to every Christian's an overcomer. And you know what? They have a part of the truth. I will grant that. But they don't have, I think, the whole picture. Yes, we've overcome because in through faith in Christ, the Spirit of God works in us to regenerate us and make us new creatures in Christ. And we're no longer under the penalty of sin, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Thank God you've overcome 
through Christ's death. But you're not through. You are overcoming to be overcomers. Overcomers. How are we to be overcomers? We're to be overcomers by faithful living. And what if some said fighting for joy, fighting against sin, taking on the whole armor of God, overcoming through suffering. That's the context here. Christians being faithful, overcoming through living each day in obedience to the Lord in multiple ways. I think that what he's doing here is using a figure of speech when he says that you'll not be hurt by the second death because you say, well, of course not. Well, I think that what he's using here is what is known as a lactotes. You familiar with this? L-I-T-O-E-L-I-T-O-T-E-S. It's a figure of speech. It's a figure of speech that makes an assertion by denying its opposite. For example, and this one is actually used. Paul uses this language in Acts 27 and verse 20. We would say, that was no small storm. <laughs> no small storm. Yeah, it blew roofs off homes. It brought down trees. It took out the power lines. It was no small storm. You see the point? That means the storm was quite violent. We use this speech, uh, figure of speech a lot. Um, we could say, you won't go unrewarded. It means you'll be richly rewarded. Or that suit, that suit is no bargain. It means, hey, that must be a hard shafter in Mars. <laughs> that must be a very expensive suit. Or if you help me, I won't forget it. Meaning, I'll return the favor. You get the idea of what a latotes is? And there are other places in Scripture where it is used. For example, in, in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. In other words, God's going to repeat, repay you lavishly. So I say, well, I guess I have read some latotes. I just didn't know that word. But that's what it is. So it's a form of understatement. It's the opposite of a hyperbole. A hyperbole, you exaggerate. And in Latotes, you purposely understate something. And again, another example. Paul said, I'm a Jew, a citizen of no insignificant city. Acts 21.39. Meaning, it was a very important city. So are you with me? I think that's the, the language that he's using here. And therefore, what he's saying, he's saying the first death may hurt you, but only briefly. But the second death will not harm you at all. And Jesus is negating something negative. In other words, he's understating intentionally for effect's sake the reality. Am I getting it to you? Uh, here, someone's put it this way. I like this one. Nobody earns eternal salvation. It doesn't come as a reward for faithfulness, but as a free gift. Are we together on that? And therefore, the book of Revelation 22:17 concludes by saying, Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So you don't get, you don't get freedom from the second death by paying things for it. Costly service. Sanctification comes through service and cost involved in service. Justification is free. Am I clear?
Okay. Trying to be. I want to conclude, and I'll make this uh, conclude with this. I came across a story um, that I want to, uh, and, a, and I've got a, uh, a statement. Well, let, let me explain the story. Any of you, we got some, Frank needs to be here. I'm going to talk about baseball here. Dave Trevecki. Remember that man, Dave Trevecki? He used to pitch for the uh, uh, San Francisco Giants, left-hander, good one. And I remember when he pitched, he was, um, he was, you know, he and his wife were believers. He, David Trevecki, Trevecki, he contracted cancer in the humerus of his left arm. He was a left-hander. And he had to, it was his pitching arm, obviously, and he had to go in for treatment, and he was out of baseball for, what, a year, maybe? And so it looked like then he was, you know, he was tested it, and he was ready to get back on the mound. There is a very ugly film clip of what happened, where when he, on a pitch, his arm just shattered. It just exploded and broke. So serious, so serious, that they had to amputate his arm and did his pitching career. He was good. Dave Trevecki and his wife were believers, and he wrote a book. And he describes this experience. He describes his hard times like, your, as Justin was describing your opening illustration, you sure there's no way we can get to that place you described this morning? I don't have to get there. That he described, uh, Trevecki described it as a wilderness experience. And here's what he said. Looking back, my wife, Jan, and I learned that the wilderness is part of the landscape of faith. And every bit as essential as the mountaintop. On the mountaintop, we are overwhelmed by God's presence. In the wilderness, we are overwhelmed by his absence. Both places should bring us to our knees. The one in utter awe. The other in utter dependence. You know, when the Lord sovereignly determines sorrows and difficulties and trials, persecution, when he determines that for us, he is not in the stands just seeing how it's going to play out. He is in the midst of us, loving us, directing all things for his purposes in our lives. And no matter how dry and bleak and arid our experience may become circumstantially, this does not mean that the Lord does not love us and that he wants us and we learn our best lessons. Do we not when we're faithful to him in hard times? You heard many say, oh, I learned the best things of the Lord. You know, my life has just been peaches and cream and I just have learned so much of the Lord. But is it rather? And when we get to heaven, we'll look back upon those trials, these trials Oh, thank you, Lord. This that now is mine and the riches that you said that I had, it makes all that just pale into insignificance. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the hope you give us. And Lord, I pray that any of us here tonight who are on the fringes of hopelessness, that you'll bring them back to the center.
all of us. Thank you, O God, for your love. And I pray, Lord, for our church. As sorrows are sweeping over us, sometimes it seems more than we can safely shoulder. We need you, Lord. We love you and we want to love you more. Show us how. So help us in Christ's name. Amen.